Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the People, Power, Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. Hi, my name is Petra Alderman. I am a research fellow at CEDA and your host for this episode. It is my great pleasure to welcome Professor Stefan Wolf as our guest. Stefan is a professor of international security at the University of Birmingham, and he's well known for his research on the management of contemporary security challenges, especially in the prevention and settlement of ethnic conflicts and civil wars. He's also an expert on post-conflict state building in deeply divided and war-torn societies and has written extensively on the geopolitics and geoeconomics in Eurasia, including great power competition between Russia, China and the West. Stefan has written many books and academic articles on these topics, including his recent book written with Tatiana. Diana Maliarenko called The Dynamics of Emerging De Facto States, Eastern Ukraine in the Post-Soviet Space. He's also a regular contributor to the Conversation Outlet, and he's a co-founder of the Navigating the Vortex. So it's absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast, Stefan. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. So far on this podcast series, we have been talking mostly about democracy in the context of domestic politics. But much of what has been happening around the world since the start of the millennium has been framed as this global struggle between democracy on the one hand and authoritarianism on the other. Now, this binary has been given more credit in recent years by obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine that has brought war back onto the European soil. But Stefan, how helpful is this binary in getting us to understand the different conflicts happening around the world right now? Are we really seeing this big great battle between democracy and authoritarianism? I think this is definitely one very useful lens to look at things. And as you already mentioned, I mean, obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine is clearly, in my view, linked to this struggle between different uh, great powers and the way in which they organize both themselves domestically, but also the broader international order. Obviously, we also see it with China, but we also see it with a number of rising powers, if you want. So if you look at the role that the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, for example, are playing, the role of Turkey comes in here. But also the interesting developments, if you want, uh, that we have seen in South Africa and uh, in Brazil, and most recently the election of what I would say is certainly a populist candidate in Argentina. I think all of this very much plays into this idea that maybe we were a little over-optimistic in 1990 when the end of history was proclaimed and uh, there was only one way forward and that would be democracy. So I think there's definitely something to that. But on the other hand, I also think what we are seeing right now is very much a traditional great power behavior that has been going on for, well, arguably centuries, uh, depending on how far one wants to date back history. And that happened between states that were very similar in their domestic makeup. So if you think of 19th century Europe, for example, these were all not exactly beacons of democracy that were fighting with and against each other. And still we had very similar geopolitical conflagrations at the time as we have today. 
That's very interesting. And I like that you brought this up. Is this really about competing regimes? Are we really looking at this big fight between the future of the world, whether it is going to be more democratic or more authoritarian? Or as you just pointed or hinted at, that the situation might be a little bit more complex because we do have a history of conflict between countries of similar domestic organization regime times. Kind of wonder how useful it is to really create this binary of democracy versus authoritarianism. I think the binary is useful in the sense, if you look at it from the perspective of human rights, for example, there's no question that a country like Russia, for example, has very, very little regard for even basic human rights, political and civil liberties. I think it's similar in China, and in China, I would say it's certainly gotten worse over the past couple of years with President Xi now really consolidating his grip on power. From that perspective, there clearly is a very binary distinction between what happens in democracy and what happens mm. in non-democracies. And on a personal note, I mean, I have quite individual experience with that having grown up for, well, the first two decades of my life on the, if you want, the wrong side of the Iron Curtain. So I really can personally appreciate all the opportunities that I now have living in a democratic country, as opposed to the opportunities that I did not have living in East Germany until now. 1989. So I think in, in that sense, the binary really is uh, useful. I think at another level, it's probably less useful because I think what partly drives some of the current competition is sort of a general level of distrust between different states, between different governments, and the fear that in some cases you could go as far as saying a paranoia, that somebody else is out there trying to get you, trying to undermine your own power. And so, so I think in, in, in that sense, there is something more to that. We have seen it with election interference in the United States in 2016, most likely again in, in 2024 as well. But we also see sort of some of the uh, concerns raised by other countries that complain about similar practices by uh, the European Union, by the United States in terms of democracy promotion or support for uh, for democratic forces. So I think it in, in that sense, it, again, it cuts both ways. Yeah, and I'm glad you raised that as well, because I think it's very important to bring up those kind of things that the paranoia is mutually shared. So it's not just these authoritarian regimes these days being extremely worried that the West and the United States is going to try to topple their rule and, you know, um, get them out of power and impose a democratic system onto them or more democratic system onto them. But it's actually the other way around as well, where we have the Western countries increasingly being worried about electoral interference. What is also quite interesting is to see that homegrown trend where you have also the, the more, as you mentioned before, for example, with the recent elections in Argentina, you've got more of these populist slash more authoritarian figures rising within um, what we thought were established democracies, obviously the US, Argentina, the UK itself. It's a very interesting trend that we are seeing. I know that you have written a lot and you have talked a lot about the situation in Ukraine. So if we can maybe zoom on to that one for a moment. The war in Ukraine will soon be entering its third year. And obviously the conflict has changed since the very beginning, since Russia invaded Ukraine on the 22nd of February 2021. So if you were to look at it, how do you think the conflict has changed since those early days? And what do you perceive to be the biggest challenge in Ukraine right now? 
That's a big question. The key change that we have seen in particular over the last six or so months, I think, uh, has to do with the fact that it's effectively a stalemate on the ground. The Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, last year was very successful. Ukraine regained quite a lot of territory. The counteroffensive this year, which started in June, has gained Ukraine very, very little. And what it has gained has come at a huge cost. So I think from that perspective, we are now at a situation where I think neither side really has a clear path to military victory. Now, what is, of course, important is that this may well change again. And at the moment, I think I have more worries that it will change in the advantage of uh, Russia. There's a lot of uncertainty now about Western support uh, for Ukraine. It's not entirely clear how this will play out during the upcoming presidential elections in the United States. If we have a Trump presidency, what will that mean, not only for aid to Ukraine, but also for the US commitment to NATO, for example? To what extent will the European Union or other European countries be able to step up to the plate here and basically cover this uh, potential shortfall, both in terms of U.S. contributions to Ukraine, but also potentially taking care of their own security. So I think in that sense, we are really at a, at a very critical situation now in this war. And of course, all of this, we also mustn't forget, is played out on the back of the civilian population in Ukraine. I mean, they are now basically in the middle of the next winter, still suffering a lot from the damage that Russia did to critical national infrastructure. Last year, the Russian campaign has gained a new momentum, again, targeting uh, the electricity grid and so on. So again, I mean, there is a real danger here now that this really is becoming an unwinnable war for either side. And I think that, I mean, from my own personal perspective, is a, uh, is a terrible situation to be in. Indeed. And I mean, obviously, as we were talking before about this, you know, struggle between democracy and authoritarianism, in a way, this war is very important in terms of what's going to happen next in terms of global politics and and potentially conflict for the years to come. So if we look at the sort of the democratic side and the West and the support of the West, how would you assess their commitment up to this point? I mean, you said that you're worried that, you know, that commitment might lessen. But do you think the West has done enough to defend democracy when it has been assaulted. So far, what, what the West has clearly done enough was to make sure that Putin doesn't win outright in Ukraine. But preventing Putin from winning or Ukraine from losing is very different from, you know, making sure that Ukraine wins, that democracy wins, that it becomes very clear that dictators like Putin do not have a leg to stand on. And I really don't think that we are there yet. And I'm not entirely sure that we will actually get there in the foreseeable future. And in a broader historical perspective, I mean, I'm reminded again of the, of the situation uh, in Germany, for example, after the Second uh, World War. Yes, all analogies are deeply flawed. From, from that perspective, you could make an argument potentially to say, well, maybe it is better to consolidate democracy and help with recovery in those territories that the Ukrainian government controls, rather than having an endless prolongation of an unwinnable uh, war. And I think that to some extent in, again, very different circumstances was a decision that the Western allies made in the late 1940s with Germany. And my family and I 
at least half of the family. And I, we, we lived on the wrong side of that. And I mean, we suffered in a way the consequences of living under what was then Soviet occupation, basically. But 40 years on uh, uh, from that, um, you had a clearly very successful economically, politically uh, democratic West Germany that could manage the, the reintegration of East Germany uh, reasonably well. So again, I mean, this is a very long time frame and it's a very big ask. But I think it's also important to consider what's actually the alternatives are to to continuing to to fight and that's obviously a decision that in the end ukrainians have to make for themselves but i think it's also a decision that needs to be supported and supportable by by europe and by the united states that's a very good point and i think the analogy that you brought up as well is a valid one in many ways because it does show how you could potentially maybe get out of conflict and it you know, the, the story of Germany itself shows that there is a way for the country then to come back from that, maybe not initially, but it might take a good few years. But obviously, Germany has reunified eventually. Now, going back to um, maybe Russia, because this so far, we've been talking a little bit more about the Ukraine side. But obviously, there was the Prigozhin mutiny back in summer 2023. And I remember, you know, around the time, there was a lot of um, speculation analysis in the media and everywhere. To what extent this is basically showing some kind of weakness of Kremlin and weakness of Putin? Obviously, a few months have passed since then. So how do you view these events now? You know, have they really changed the course of the conflict in any way? And are they really showing this kind of weaker side of authoritarianism as it was said back then, back in the summer 2023? Well, I think it certainly shows a degree of vulnerability, even of leaders like Putin. But I also think that what Putin has demonstrated since is an absolutely ruthless demonstration of his will and ability to survive. I mean, Prigozhin was was very quickly first neutralized in a way. He did not have the support that he, I think, had imagined he would have. He didn't face the resistance that maybe Putin would have liked him yeah. to face on his ultimately abortive uh, march towards Moscow. He and some of his key allies in the military uh, were very quickly sidelined. And then, I mean, Prigozhin himself found a very untimely end, which I think is very hard to see how this would have been just an accident. So I think in, in, in that sense, Putin is now probably in a stronger position. And as we have seen with his, well, arguably uh, staged, choreographed announcement that he will run again for a re-election in March uh, in the in the presidential elections in, in Russia, I think that demonstrates that he himself um, still views himself as the basically the undisputed ruler of mm. Russia, but also that he has an inner circle around himself that is willing to to back him up on this. Uh, and I think that's very similar to what we see in other non-democratic uh, authoritarian settings, whether that's the uh, hereditary monarchies uh, in the Middle East, whether that's uh, uh, China. But, and I think that's, that's an important caveat uh, to be in mind, all of those regimes always look stable until they don't. In 1989, I mean, living in East Germany, the collapse was not foreseeable. It really just happened and the system was no longer able to, to survive. That is always a possibility, but it's not necessarily something for which you can make detailed plans. 
Yeah, and it is true. I mean, obviously, the the actual mutiny came as a shock in many ways. I don't think anybody sort of expected that to happen. As you say, you know, these kind of things just come out of nowhere. And then you really see how how stable the, the regime is or isn't. And if the fact that Putin has survived the, the mutiny and maybe emerged in a stronger position, as you have just said, doesn't necessarily mean that somewhere down the line there couldn't be a, a more successful challenge. And in some ways, I think that's the kind of conundrum these authoritarian leaders have to live with because they do not ever know who will be the next person who will try to challenge their power and their grip on power within their own context. So I think the paranoia that we were talking about at the beginning, in many ways on their part, is, is justified. But you've been mentioning China on a few occasions. And I think, you know, since the early days of, of the Russian war, in Ukraine, many eyes were on China as well, sort of watching very closely what Xi Jinping was going to do, you know, his moves, his, his reactions, because often Russia and China and the kind of geopolitical struggle are shown as the two great authoritarian powers that are trying to somehow undercut the West and change the shape of the international order. So how do you think has this war affected the kind of great power rivalry between the United States and China in particular? And, you know, what kind of implications did it have for the relationship between China and Russia as well. I think it's a truly sort of multi-dimensional game of chess and and whatever else you can potentially play in these uh, circumstances. So I think the war against Ukraine by Russia, I don't think that was something that China really wanted or desired. It does have some advantages uh, for China. So, I mean, it clearly has driven Russia much closer uh, to China, has made Russia much more dependent um, on China. But there's also, of course, the danger that that will eventually mean that the Russian dependency on China will become a millstone around uh, uh, China if they have to make sure that, you know, Russia survives. Uh, so, so I think in, in, in that sense, there is a, there's a fine line that Xi Jinping has to, has to walk here in terms of making sure that Russia doesn't lose, um, that it remains dependent uh, on China, but it doesn't become a greater burden to China. And that, of course, is really important because, um, I mean, a lot of people always talk about we are like in a new Cold War. Even if it is a new Cold War that emerges between China and the U.S., it is a very different situation already if you look at the um, extent to which the economies of China and the U.S., China and the EU really are very closely interconnected, de-risking, decoupling and similar efforts aside. And I I don't think that is necessarily going to change uh, much. I also don't think that China really is out at the moment for full-scale conflict with the uh, US. I think some of the um, recent moves that we uh, have seen in terms of not exactly a rapprochement, but at least some restabilization of the US-China relationship, um, I think that's very important. Because in the end, I don't think either side really has much appetite for a full-scale confrontation. But I also don't think that we should kid ourselves that the China-US relationship is not one of rivalry and Mm. intense uh, uh, competition and potentially one that has significant potential for escalation. One of the points that you you raised, and I think I'd like to emphasize that, is that I think China is often seen in many ways as this uh, revisionist power that is trying to promote this kind of authoritarian model of 
development around the world. But I think what you said before, and we've had this on this podcast before in the context of Africa, China is not necessarily interested in installing authoritarian regimes. China, first and foremost, wants to see stability, regardless of which shape and form this stability comes in, whether it's a democratic regime or authoritarian regime. China doesn't seem to care as much as long as there is a level of stability and they are able to do business, they are able to to pursue that kind of economic interests in those kind of countries and targets. So I think that's a very important point that you raised and it's worth emphasizing in that sense. And also the interconnectedness between the United States and China at the level of economy. And I feel like that often maybe gets brushed under the carpet when when we talk about this sort of great power rivalry, especially when you focus on the binary of democracy versus authoritarianism, because there's a lot more that ties these two great powers together than divides them in many ways. Now, looking at this, and we've discussed already various different aspects of the, the conflict and the issues at hand, is democracy likely to lose out from these conflicts? I mean, in the case of, let's say, Ukraine maybe going for some kind of compromise, keeping part of its territory intact, and then ceding part of the, the territory to Russia in the name of ceasefire or some kind of peace. Do you think that democracy... And let's talk about the kind of the global um, level of democracy is likely to lose out. And are these heightening tensions between the three great powers, United States, Russia and China, are they going to mean more disruption in the long term? Are we going to see more reversal of democracy in the long term? What, what do you think? I think that's entirely uh, possible. I mean, I think in terms of the global scale of sort of the balance sheet between democracy and um, autocracy, I think it will be really important um, to watch the outcome of the presidential elections in the United States. A second Trump presidency would not necessarily suggest that we'll have a lot of democracy uh, mm. uh, going on uh, there. There are important elections um, coming up as well. Um, Germany, for example, 2025, the current rise of, well, questionably democratic uh, forces like the so-called alternative uh, uh, for Germany, um, that does not fill me with a lot of optimism, if you want. We still have uh, Viktor Orban in uh, uh, in Hungary. Um, again, not exactly a beacon stalwart of uh, democracy. But then on the other hand, we have had the elections in Poland, which have also demonstrated that it's really not game over for democracy. And after about a decade of not exactly democratic rule and rule of law uh, in Poland, I mean, we have had the comeback of Donald Tusk and the uh, civic platform there. So I, th I think from, from that perspective, this is going to be a really long, long game ahead. And I mean, if you look back at the, um, well, let's say the last hundred years or something like that, I mean, there has been a constant up and down in terms of sort of the global balance sheet between democracies and uh, autocracies. Of course, the last hundred or so years also have seen uh, two world wars and numerous regional conflicts. And again, I think that in, in a way brings us back to the to the starting point of this conversation where it is at one level a binary between democracy and uh, autocracy, but it goes beyond that. And just having one kind does not necessarily mean that the world will necessarily be more peaceful, more humane, if you want. 
Yeah, and that's a really good point. And also, I think what you just said before about Poland and the Polish elections, in some ways, I think that demonstrates that there is still appetite for democracy at the popular level. I think, obviously, as we as we said, the binary isn't as simple as we're talking about democracy and authoritarianism. There are lots of different dynamics in each of these countries. And some of the democratic countries have had maybe more authoritarian practices brought in as a result of particular leaders or political parties um, pushing on particular agendas and, and, you know, treating these democracies as kind of dispensable forms and becoming more authoritarian. But then at the same time, it doesn't necessarily always seems to be the case that at a popular level, people would be done with democracy or fed up with democracy. And I think that's a, a very good point that you raised there. And I think especially in countries, as you said, from your own experience in Eastern Germany or in this post-Soviet space, like in Poland or even Slovakia, Czech Republic, a lot of these countries have gone through through uh, periods of oppression and living under authoritarian rule. And I think people still somewhere do remember that that wasn't all great either. And as you said, like, you know, there were very few opportunities. And um, I think people can still reflect back and realize that although democracy in its current state might not be perfect, I mean, nowhere really it is perfect, but it still offers more than living under a full-blown authoritarian regime. So I would I would say that hopefully that would be enough to keep us going, right? Absolutely. I, I, I still very strongly believe that if people are given a genuine choice, they are more likely to vote, if you want, for an open society uh, rather than a closed one. Definitely. And I think also this is where that kind of binary that we started off the conversation with of looking at, you know, democracy versus authoritarianism might not be always as, as useful when we start digging and looking deeper at the messy nitty gritty of politics. And I think we've also demonstrated that, that when it comes to even the great power competition, it's not always as simple to say, well, this is the democratic world promoting democracy and the authoritarian world trying to promote some kind of level of autocratic governance. Thank you very much, Stefan, for joining the People Power Politics podcast. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but I very much hope that we will get another opportunity to, to talk more about these, these fascinating developments. Hopefully, we will be able to keep some level of positive thread going through the conversations. But I'm glad that we finished on a more positive note and didn't paint the world um, in an extremely bleak way. So it's been great having you here. Thank you so much for, for joining us today. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm Petra Alderman, Research Fellow at CEDA and the host of this People Power Politics podcast episode. I have been talking to Professor Stefan Wolf, who is a Professor of International Security at the University of Birmingham. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you for listening to the People Power Politics podcast, brought to you by CEDA, the Centre for Elections, Democracy, Accountability and Representation at the University of Birmingham. To learn more about our centre and the exciting work we do on these issues around the world, please follow us on Twitter at at CEDA underscore BHAM and visit our website using the link in the podcast description.